Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome to a special edition of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, where Chris and I will talk about all the various summits last week, particularly the summit between President Biden and his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. So, Chris, what did you think? A lot of activity, cyber center stage. Well, I think that was the most significant part. Uh, You know, I don't know what your perspective is, but in all the many years I've done cyber and cyber policy, I think last week was probably a high watermark in terms of cyber across the board, you know, ransomware and, and state-sponsored issues getting that level of attention at the G7, at the NATO summit, at the EU-US summit, and finally in the uh, meeting between President Biden and Putin. So that alone, I think, was a major accomplishment, just raising this to the political level, I think it needs to be. Did you say NATO as well? I- yes, NATO. There was a sta- In the NATO yeah. summit, there were some strong statements that came out of there with respect yeah. to I mean, some things they said before, like, you know, which a lot of people jumped on, which is cyber can be the basis of an Article 5 invocation. But they've said that before. But I think it was just. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the sort of roles that you saw here for each of the different things? I mean, the EU one in particular, NATO, it sounds like we're on the same wavelength. G7, we're on the same wavelength. Putin, we're not on the same wavelength. Where would you put the EU? I think largely in terms of the collective reaction, largely on the same wavelength, you know, with both the G7 and with the EU, I think when we're talking about China, uh, very divergent views, even within the EU. So it's not monolithic there. And on Russia, I think less divergent views, although even some within the EU diverges to some extent. I think the interesting thing is the EU summit did talk a lot about threats, but also focused a lot about technology, 5G issues, um, you know, how we could work better together. But there's a lot of differences between the EU and the US on issues around privacy, around regulation, maybe less so than there used to be. But there's a lot of thorny issues that still need to be worked out between the two sides on that. But I think in terms of dealing with threats and using uh, various aspects, various tools, I think there was largely agreement. But as we've seen before, the EU sometimes can act together like they did with the diplomatic toolbox. Yeah, not too long ago, but often it's uh, it's hard to get them to all agree. So you've got the G7 more or less on the same page as the U.S. Not entirely. I mean, I think the French are still struggling with giving up the dream of strategic autonomy. Uh, you've got NATO, uh, clearly a good focus on China, a strong focus on Russia. Um, how far can we get if we don't have the EU involved in this? You know, I think in terms of the Russian threat, we can get pretty far. I think they're willing to put more pressure on Russia. I think they view Russia as being involved in a lot of destabilizing conduct with respect to them. In terms of the tool set, however, as we've seen from the the Nord Stream pipeline, there are limits. EU countries, particularly Germany, are also going to look out for their economic interests. And when when you do things like economic moves, whether they be sanctions or other things, you also have to take some pain and be willing to take some pain 
And, you know, I don't think Germany is willing necessarily to do that. I think the UK could go farther even after the Skirple poisoning, and they didn't because there's a lot of investment in the UK. So I still think there are some challenges moving forward. I think in terms of confronting Putin, though, I think there was a pretty unified front, and I think that's good. China is a much different issue. I, I think um, I think the EU does see China as at least a major competitor. It may be a market for them, but it's also a competitor. So I think they understand they have to do these things like joint research and development with the US. They have to think about 6G, 7G, and 8G. They have to worry about the integrity of their systems. And in fact, you know, China and Russia every day are trying to exploit those systems. So I still think more commonality than not, but as you say, there are some limitations. What was your perspective? The Germans are uh, acting a little, they're, they're really ambivalent on this. I think Merkel didn't forgive us for Snowden. Uh, you know, since if you know what the BND does, it's hard to see why she holds a grudge. But you've got the new CDU candidate, her successor, uh, pretty much saying, hey, we don't need a new Cold War. We have to find ways to work with China. It's not, uh, it's, a, it's a puzzling statement because I, I get the economic benefits of working with China. I'm not sure about uh, setting yourself up as a, as a guiding light for human rights and saying, we can overlook this. Uh, a Swedish official once told uh, us, you know, the thing he liked about China is you could have political differences with them and yet still do business. And so the question is, how long can we keep that one going? Yeah, you might remember that Angela Merkel was the first world leader ever to call China out on the theft of intellectual property years before we did it. And she was really you know, out, out in front doing that. She got almost no support from anyone else, and then she kind of dropped it. So it's not that they couldn't do this, but I think they had to figure out how, you know, both with China and Russia, how to weave their way in terms of their own economic interests. I, you know, I, with Russia, I worry you know, it's not overnight that we're not going to be able to flip the switch and change what's happened over the last three years or even beyond where, you know, still a great number of people in Russia trust Putin more than the U.S. Now, that may be true for parts of the U.S. too. <laughs> uh, but, but, I, I, but I think that that's a challenge too. Uh, and Russia and Germany have always had a complicated relationship, as you know. They're especially in, in a lot of the older uh, German population, they still think of Russia as being grateful to Russia for not stopping them from reunification back you know, many years ago. So there's still this weird, uh, weird relationship with Russia, but still I think that they're willing to put pressure there. China, you know, time will tell. No country in Europe wants to be left behind. And they think that if it's just a battle between the US and China, they're not going to be players. So they want to have that middle position to some extent. Macron actually said that a while ago that, uh, the decline of Europe meant a world ruled by the U.S. and China, which um, was a little gloomy. It's like he'd been reading uh, Brave New World or something. But when I thought about the Putin summit, first of all, I felt immense relief. We didn't have anything about it. I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. Nobody was babbling about pressing the reset button. I think it was a pretty hard-nosed approach. And I appreciate the president, you know, giving... Uh, kind of a discreet reminder to Putin that Russia is not the only country that can do hacking. So overall, it was good. But now the issue is, we know the Russians, they'll say very interesting and go back and think about what to do. So 
what is it you think they'll do next? What's your guess for the Russians? Well, let, let me step back a second and just get my perspective on that meeting. Too. I agree with you. I think everything that folks expected, I think the bar was set very low by the last president who came out of a meeting, his first meeting, and said, we have an impenetrable cyber unit between the two of us, which was just laughable. Uh, so it certainly wasn't that. I suspect there are many things said in that meeting that we don't know or we haven't heard about. So uh, more, you know, they kept saying there were no threats given, but I think they made pretty clear what the capabilities are. And not just, you know, Biden talked about the cyber capability, but there are other capabilities too. You know, um, yeah, I think people misread some of the things he said. There was a, I, I know you saw this, there was a bunch on Twitter where people saying, did Biden just threaten to go after critical infrastructure in, in Russia as a retaliation? He didn't say that. You know, uh, and that was that was misheard. But he did say, look, we have tools and we can use those tools and we have other tools that we'll use. So I thought that was good. But I agree with you. You know, that was a right message for Putin to hear and being quiet about it and, and delivering those, quote unquote, coercive messages in private probably were better than than just, uh, you know, making a big show of it because that doesn't get you anywhere. But, you know, there's a couple of things there. You know, Biden gave him a list of all, essentially all the critical infrastructure um, and just said, this is off limits. Yeah, and it's the DHS list. Everything's on their website, right? Uh, yeah. I, I laughed at the one legislator in our Congress who said, oh, he's giving him a roadmap it, <laughs> because it's on it's on DHS. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the history of Russia is they just don't go away quietly. They will potentially test us on these things on the margins, see where our lines really are. We haven't been good, as you know, and we both talked about this, at actually holding Russia accountable or acting in the past. We've been good at calling it out recently, but we haven't really gone the next step. So they'll see if we have the resolve to do that, I think. You know, they don't want to be overly escalatory, but they'll, they'll do it to, to see yeah. where we are, I suspect. Yeah, I'm waiting for the, the next Russian test because you know they're going to test us. But one of the things that surprised me in the discussion, uh, along with people not knowing that the 16 infrastructures were published on DHS's website, one of the things that surprised me is a lot of people, and this was the Russian intent, the Russian intent was to confuse us, to capture the uh, less astute, perhaps, among us. And so they made this offer. They made a couple offers, but one of the offers was, let's have a treaty. And I was talking to a reporter yesterday who was shocked when I told him, well, you know, the U.S. has been opposed to a cyber treaty with Russia for 23 years, right? So what, what, was, what was your sort of reaction to this? I mean, there's two things. There's the Russian offer, which was laughable. And then there's the fact that um, a number of commentators in the U.S. seem to think it was a serious ploy. Well, I found that the most disappointing part. I mean, anyone who studied the history of the U.S. and Russian relations should know that, you know, and there was also a, a very well-known reporter for a very no, well-known newspaper who also kind of fed into the theory that the U.S. wanted a treaty. That was their goal, which is not. Uh, anyone, <laughs> who looked, anyone who looked at this, I'm not going to name him, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyone who looked at this, and knows anything about the relationship, knows that Russia, and to some extent China, the one been, who have been pushing a cyber treaty for many, many years. And as you say, Jim, the U.S. has always rejected it for lots of good reasons, among others that, you know, what Russia and China really want is something that will restrict content, go after, you know, what they think is destabilizing speech, mm -hmm. uh, you know, things that we can never agree to. And, uh, you know, in a more tactical level, it's a way to restrain us while they continue to do whatever they want. And, and look, I understand 
like Brad Smith, who's pushed for a treaty, or at least you know, that's been a, a, a talking point for him. But the fact is, Russia violates treaties too. So a treaty doesn't get you that far, even if the you know everything came together and the you know the birds sang and you had. So I, I was I I wasn't surprised Putin did that. Putin's a smart tactical guy. If, if nothing else, he's a really smart tactician, and he led up. At the end of the Trump administration, he had that long letter where he said, "We need a high, you know, we need to reinstate our high-level dialogue." Reason for that is nothing to see here. You know, we were talking again, nothing to see. Here. Forget the past. He uh, talked about, um, you know, some kind of treaty. There was an interesting offer of doing something like on the incidents and sea agreement. You know, things that might be off limits. We and mm-hmm. signal. The U.S. has talked about that for years. I don't know. What yeah, that I don't, uh, I don't know what it means, and so it doesn't make any sense. I mean, ships shouldn't bump into each other. How does that work in cyberspace? And yeah, I think, I the, think whole, the whole notion of confidence building measures is a little, uh, I was talking to our mutual friend, the mother of norms. <laughs> and she said, you know, she'd been a proponent of hotlines, but she noticed the Russians never used it. Yeah. So well, we they, can have all the hotlines we want, right? Yeah, they come up and say, yeah, it was not us. Okay, they, great. They, they, it doesn't they, matter. They, yeah, they may use it not for the purpose of design. They may use it to say, just give us more evidence. Um, or, or for prank phone calls, they call up and order a pizza from the watch center. But, you know, going back to that that question, you know, he did that just before the summit, as you remember, he did the, oh, we'll extradite our people if you extradite yours, which again was an empty offer because under their constitution, they don't extradite people. And look, I used to chair the G8 high-tech crime group when Russia was in it and the G7 when they were, and I used to be- a Also, name, name an American cyber criminal who's hacking Russian networks. Yeah. It's a null set, easy to offer, you know? Or, or and what I worried about was if Putin was smart, he, which he is, I mean, here's a guy who's played, he's got a terrible hand and he's played it incredibly well. But does that mean they were going to, if you were going to go after people who potentially could hack Russian networks, all of them are U.S. government employees? What does exactly that mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, that quid quo quo was very much like the Mueller, that the one he gave to Trump, you know. Oh, Mueller can come in and talk to people in Moscow, and I'll send my people to talk to people in the U.S. You know, on things that had nothing to do with cyber. It was it was a deal that could not be accepted. You know, um, so that's setting the stage pretty nicely of saying, "Oh, I'm trying to be the reasonable guy, and you guys are just rebuffing me." So he's playing to an audience with that. The disappointment I saw was I I kind of expected, and this might still happen, uh, as you say, next steps. Putin could crack down on the criminal groups, the non-state affiliated criminal groups that are doing some of this ransomware. He doesn't give he doesn't care about these people. And they're causing some, you know, yeah. they align with his goals and trying to destabilize the West and cause issues, but their head's up a little high now. And that never works well with Russia. So yeah. I could see him stomping on them and doing it as a show of personal, you know, authority, but also to show some goodwill. Maybe that will still happen. I hope yeah. that there'll be a little more of that. As well, you the, the term, the, that, not us. The term in Russian, I'll translate it for you, is human sacrifice. Yes. So, you know, pick one or two of them, uh, arrest them, throw them in jail. You can let them out in a couple months. That's what they usually do. Uh, have a show trial. They're good at that. And then say, hey, look, we 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 took you seriously. We arrested this Igor here, and he's, he's going to the clink. Um, but do you think the Russians will ever make any real concessions? Well, and this is this is this is easy to answer. Only if it's in Putin's self-interest, either because he gains <laughs> power by doing it, or he avoids bad things happening by doing it. And and so we have to play both sides of those. I think you know, one 
I like I said, they have not cooperated on cybercrime for as long as I remember because they're not. You know, if they're attacking Russian targets, sure. they cooperate. Yeah, outside they just don't, and that's not. No, I, lo- I love that rule. You can't attack Russian language websites. That's brilliant, and that is the rule. I used to think so. There's three rules: cooperate when we ask. Uh, you know, like Estonia, uh, don't attack Russian language websites. Everyone does that. I used to think there was a third rule: share the wealth, because these ransomware people have made a lot of money. Yeah, but I, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I'm not so it's it's a lot of money from our perspective. I'm not sure it care, matters that much to the Kremlin. maybe not to him personally, but you know the the my history the history of my dealing with Russia as a prosecutor and a justice. You know there are three types of things. There were either the criminal groups are working with at the behest of of the Kremlin at some level. Or they were there was corruption. And there's lots of corruption still in Moscow where they were getting paid off. And so there's that's not, yeah. not, not maybe at Putin's level, but certainly at lower levels. And then right. there was they just didn't care because it wasn't, you know, it didn't really matter to them. Um, so, you know, is there a chance for more cooperation there? It's a hard road and and it could just be rounding up the usual suspects, as you say, to say, hey, look, we've done something and not something sustained. But we'll see. You know, interestingly, I wonder if one of the non-threat messages that were delivered was, look, nation state aside, these criminal groups, these ransomware groups are causing real problems in our country. Either you do something about it or we will. And that's where you could use your cyber tools and others to go after criminal groups. Now, that's not where DOD is, I don't think, right now. But, you know, you can make their lives miserable uh, or more. No, miserable. The, the Barbary pirates are the 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 current role model for me, which is the, if the fledging Republic, remember millions in for defense, but not one cent in tribute. If we could, we only had three ships and we sent all of them to the Barbary pilots. If we could do that in 1803, whenever, why can't we do it now? One of the things I'd love to know though, is I would love to know what Putin did when he called up Xi Jinping, not so much to report, but maybe to reassure, maybe to tell him what he got. I, I'm sure there was a phone call. Uh, and I talked to some Chinese friends a couple of days ago who complained. They said they were officials. You have a, a summit with the Russians, but not with us. What's going on? We don't we don't count. And, you know, I said, well, hold, hold, you know, first, you should be grateful, right, that we didn't have a summit. And second, bide your time. Something will come. But well, what do you think the Russians are doing now? Are they are they calling all their friends, both of them, to say, uh, here's what we did or. What's the normal drill? I think, I think there's some diplomatic messaging to their friends, including China. Look, you know, as you remember, we, we kind of got China more interested in the idea of CBMs because he said, we're doing these with Russia. You know, are you not a great power? Are you not someone we should do this with? And that actually had some play with them. You know, they don't want to be left out of the conversation, nor should they be. But I think Russia, look, Russia's going to go back to some of its old alliances. It's going to use the Shanghai Cooperation Group to come, as they already have, and their cybercrime treaties and other things. They're going to they're going to make a play, more of a play, in the third committee on the cybercrime treaty. That's going to be one area. As you know, the new open-ended working group is starting in the UN. The internal working group. Yeah. Interestingly, I thought there was a pretty great connection between the GGE and this meeting with Putin, where you can certainly say there are norms you've agreed to here about not having malicious conduct coming from your borders to do something about it, to not allow proxy actors to do that. There were a number of things in that GG report validating the 2015 report. Yeah. Say, look, this is. I, I'm pretty thing. sure that was in the talking points that, you know, look, you. So that's part of why making treaties are silly. 
the Russians have agreed three times not to do this. I mean, it, three times in the last six years. What more do you want? I mean, well, and I always, you know, as uh, I think you do too, when people say, oh, but those are just voluntary commitments and so they're not really binding. Look, those are bind- when, when a country agrees to do that, there is an expectation they're going to follow that rule. There's a political commitment. Whether they call it voluntary and non-binding or not, it does not matter. You as another country or a group of countries can still hold them accountable. And that's what we need to do better. And how we do that, you know, there are a lot of tools, but we, we have. Yeah. So if, if you want to have some fun, ask people. The Russians have another group called the BRICS. And uh, you don't hear so much about that anymore because it's like, so tell me how that works when you have India and China in the same alliance. And the answer is it doesn't work. But we had uh, India, Australia, uh, a few others show up at the G7 meeting. And this idea of the quad, I don't think the quad will become, it's definitely not a military alliance. It doesn't have a security focus. It doesn't have cybersecurity as a focus, but where would you put India in all this? It's been interesting. The Russians are handicapped because you can't be friends with China and India at the same time. And they've, you know, they've picked their fellow uh, Marxists. Well, you know, India still has, although it's many years on, uh, as you know, a lot of the foreign ministry in India was trained in Russia. There's still that affinity. Moscow State University. There's, I mean, it's still there to some extent. But, you know, I think... It was very interesting when I was at the Racina Dialogue now, like a year in, you know, right before everything went south uh, or went bad. I remember being on a panel about some of these issues and the um, the then relatively new cyber coordinator for India said, look, we're not going to, you know, India has to think about India. India has to be worried about India's success. We're not going to sit on the sidelines and allow everyone else to pass us. So when we talk about security, like on 5G security, we're going to have to, yes, we have to worry about the risk, but we also have to worry about our economic success. And we're going to do that. India is going to be an independent actor. I think there's a lot more the U.S. could do to to work with India. I think there's, there's certainly, you know, they might not want to pick a fight with Russia, with China, this doesn't matter, <laughs> given all that's going on. And, and I think we need to ramp up that, you know, as you know, we had a very good relationship with India on these issues uh, where we signed the first bilateral agreement with India on cyber things or the second after Estonia. Yeah, I got a readout from, as part of a group, uh, from the Indian ambassador on the quad. And I think it was, this was last week. I think it's made more progress. I think the Indians have, you know, from a sort of pure calculation of self-interest, you're not going to be friends with China. Why would they do that? And the Russians maybe aren't the horse you want to bet on if your goal is economic growth and beating up on the Chinese. So I think the Indians, purely for reasons of self-interest, which is, of course, important for all countries, they're moving in our direction. Now, how far they'll move and what that means is a different matter. But I don't I'm sort of positive on the Indian relationship. I am, too. And I have been for a while. I, you know where I think the line gets harder, and this is true with Singapore too, and other countries that I think are, are certainly more in agreement with our general views, is they also don't want to be caught in the middle of a battle of the titans, essentially, even if they are a titan, you know, in that case, they don't want they don't want to be, you know, if it comes to this kind of collective action, they may not be that willing to be part of that collective group to, to you know, take any action against Russia or China, for instance. But it depends on the circumstances, you know? It depends on yeah. what the matter is. 
Well, the Singaporeans in the Cold War had a habit that was okay of, you know, they wanted both sides in the room so they could sort of play them off against each other. And I think that's perfectly fine because at the end of the day, uh, we can get some mileage out of that as well. You saw the same thing in other places like Africa, you know, uh, get a little from the Russians, get a little from the Americans. Everyone's happy. Um, I'm not so worried about that. People know what they're getting. And Singapore, I think, has been a very good interlocutor in ASEAN and has been very strong. Uh, I don't expect Singapore to be on the front edge of a knife and, and doing things. Oh, we owe the Singaporeans a vote of thanks for all the work yeah, they've done at the ARF and ASEAN. Tremendous work. When you compare where they were, say, five years ago with where they are now, and that's largely Singapore. So uh, tremendous that, work. I think I think that's that's been great. So I think I think that what you were saying before, I think countries have to go in with their eyes wide open. So you talk about Africa, you talk about other areas of the world that you know traditionally have tried to play in the middle between these these different countries, you know, they also have to think about the long-term costs and benefit are. You know, we've seen with China investment, for instance, that there are costs, there are explicit costs to that, whether it's cyber or in other areas. And so, you know, I think part of it is we need to really step up our engagement with those countries, even if they're on the fence. I think they're critical to the future. I don't think in any way they're a lost cause as yet, even if they're, you know, China's building their infrastructure or they have some Russian yeah. influence. I, th I think this is a, 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 you know, it's worth the, the candle uh, to, to, to engage with them more. If I was going to complain about one thing out of the summits, it would be the appearance of that antiquated phrase, strategic stability. And you know, you know my mania about... Uh, Let's not say concepts from the 20th century, but when you hear strategic stability, what do you think? Well, it goes back to that uh, that long argument, not argument, that long discussion we had back on the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace, <laughs> where we were trying to find stability. And both you and I said, look, stability basically means nothing changes. Um, we're not in a great place where nothing changes right now. <laughs> you know, if we froze things the way they are, not great. So we shouldn't use that term because it also has lots of baggage in terms of nuclear stability and, and yeah. you know, mutual insured destruction and other things. We should talk about what's the end state we want to achieve and how do we get there. And some of that will be, you know, putting strategic checks on, on you know, Russia's you know, malicious conduct. But just to use stability as something that, that defines everything is okay, that's not what stability really means. <laughs> so we, we need to use, it's like, you know, it's like my hobby horse when people talk about cyberspace being a global commons. I hate that, you know. That oh, word. yeah. We, um, we, we've been making fun of that for, for yeah, years yeah. now. And so, and I always like the phrase global condominium because parts are owned and part of it. <laughs> but but, I, but I, the reason <laughs> I don't like that or like stability is that it is, it comes with a lot of baggage. So why don't you just talk about what you're going to talk about? Don't try to use these analogies that don't fit or these metaphors that don't fit. They don't really help more than they hurt. Yeah, it's it's one of the problems with this discussion that the summit, to their credit, at least the, from what we saw, what the Americans said, it looked like they were finally moving away from some of the, the old speak, you know, so nobody talked about uh, any of the popular terms. I give by what would you give by? I'd, I'd, I'd give him an A. Yeah, I would too. I would give him an A. I, on stability, I just say, yeah, the State Department still talks about a stability framework. I'm okay with that. You know, uh, it means what it means. In that context, it means international law, CBMs, norms, and then accountability. Fine. 
I give them an A too. I think that was, uh, I thought, I thought was good. Yeah. There are some things that are not clear from the summit yet. You know, they talked about having a consultations with the Russian term consultations on the, with the U S and it's unclear from at least the people I've talked to, and maybe you've talked to others, what those are yet, whether those are working level things, which I think makes more sense. I don't think it's a restart of a high level dialogue because that would signal again, as I said, everything's okay. And that plays into what Putin's wanted for a while. It wasn't clear if this is a dialogue on the 16 infrastructures and saying what's off and off the table. They've already kind of agreed on that in the UN. So I'm not sure where that gets you. Or if it's one on cybercrime, that's happened before and hasn't really gone anywhere. So the, the kind of modalities and contours of what this consultation is I think we should look out for and see what that is. And then we can either laud or criticize yeah. later on. <laughs> I think there's a active discussion between the two sides on what consultation will entail. Yeah. And I, I, as far as I know, there is not yet a meeting of the minds on that, but at least there, there, you know, no one has come out and said, no, I won't talk. So that's always yeah. a plus, you know, my standard line was always that the, Russians like consultation because they get to go on hard currency per diem to Geneva. That's assume that's assuming it'll be in Geneva again. But uh, what was your takeaway from the talks you had with the Russians? Oh God, at this point, five years ago in Geneva with Michael Daniel and Michelle and the, all the cats and dogs. Yeah. You know, we had, as you know, a long a long history of dealing with Russia in a number of different venues. We, you know, I actually held out some small amount of hope after our first high-level presidential dialogue that we had in D.C. We had the one in Russia when Howard Schmidt was there. We had another one when Michael Daniel was there because they brought high-level people. You know, they brought very high-level people, and so they came to play. We discussed things like cybercrime cooperation, which is still an empty set. You know, it was not getting anywhere. <laughs> uh, but at least they brought high-level people, and that was the right beginning. Now, you know, we were very far apart. Then in, uh, you know, and after the Ukrainian invasion that was shut down, we did have a meeting in Geneva, which I thought was productive in the sense that we said, you know, here are things that are really problematic that, you know, that, that we see as problems. Uh, we want to continue. Remember, this is before the election interference. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. we want to continue to think about how we strengthen the CBMs, the hotline, the exchange of doctrine, the other things we talked about. We want to we want to find practical things we can talk about. And I remember, uh, you know, so it was led by a deputy national security advisor and Krutsky comes over to me and Michael and says, he's the one who runs the hackers. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but, but, you know, hmm. so we thought we deliver a pretty, pretty clear message. And literally like two months later, we have the election interference and other things. So, yeah. so yeah. you gotta, you gotta wonder. Well, that's, that's part of why I'm skeptical, because every time it's like the Russians love pulling the rug out from under us. And so every time we show up, you know, a week later, we get hit over the head with a two by four. So I'm not sure what will change that. Uh, I think they've gone back. Uh, Biden delivered a clear message. They're presumably calculating. They'll presumably want to test us in some way. So really, the issue is, you know, not the summit, but what comes after the summit. And I think that'll be interesting to watch. And I do think, yeah, they're discussing back and forth what this this consultation should look like. I do think for all the reasons we talked about, including Geneva, that you know, just having a high level dialogue, unless you have a concrete agenda and you have some working level work much before it, doesn't help the US. I mean, just saying, okay, 
let's have a high level dialogue and let's all talk unless there's a concrete agenda where you can make progress is not, you know, we've got to make sure they don't spin it as the nothing to see here. Everything's back to normal. Cause it's not, you know, and I think mm -hmm. by clear, it's not, you know, it's not just, we can forget everything in the past and go forward. There's the old phrase that, you know, well, of Russia in the non-cyber area of escalating to de-escalate, you know, getting, getting very spinning things up and then basically stepping down a little bit, they don't give up anything. They don't say mea culpa on anything, but then they try to bring it back to normal. I don't think we can allow that to happen here, but you're quite right. What happens over the next months, and then Biden, I, you know, I thought this is the other real reason I give Biden an A, too, in this uh, summit, is he came out and said, you know, we'll see. The proof is in the eating of the pudding. You know, it will take, we'll see in the next six months to a year. So not, we're going to see in like three days or 10 days. We'll see what they do. And that's exactly the right uh, way to look at it. Yeah, he and his team did a great job. In some ways, this is the strongest team we've had for a while. So, uh, you know, I, I thought from that perspective, from the if idea of communicating clearly in the summit, great job rebuilding alliances and strengthening partnerships that were a bit afraid, great job. Um, it was not a kumbaya moment, but nobody in their right mind expected that. So, oh no. Uh, from a cyber perspective, this was probably the best we could get, and it probably is a good start. Any concluding thoughts? Well, just as you said, I think it was masterful in two ways. One, I think the message was delivered right. You know, whether you get progress, who knows? But the way the whole thing was orchestrated, you know, if you told people, I did a, a panel a couple about three weeks before the G7, and they said, and they were talking about climate change, and they were talking about COVID recovery. And I was talking about cyber and I said, look, I can't tell you for certain that cyber is gonna even make it on the agenda, but it will be talked about in the back rooms. It's gonna be important to have those kind of alliances forged. But what we saw, and this is what is so masterful is you arranged the G7, NATO, uh, and then the EU meeting all before the Putin meeting. It was just very well choreographed and a way for the US to step back on the stage and say, look, it's not America first, it's America with our allies. It's this message the Biden administration talks about, about multilateralism and bringing cyber to the fore in that. Now, as you know, our State Department friends have been saying this anyway for years, even during the Trump administration, but to get that high level attention was, was critical. So, so yeah, my overall view is a good week for cyber, but yeah, the, the proof will be in the pudding. Yeah. Um, with that, let me say we will go back to our regular schedule of having diplomats. I think the next one is the German cyber ambassador. And uh, we hope to talk to you then. Thanks. Okay. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.